We get into some dangerous territory when we say just be you. I think you should find the best of you and make sure that's all coming through forcefully and not trying to stick to some deck that a corporate mothership put together. The B2B Marketing Exchange was created with one goal in mind, to help B2B practitioners across marketing and sales be better at their jobs. Now we're bringing the insights from the stage to your ears. These are the tips and tools you need to succeed. This is the B2B Marketing Exchange Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to a very special live episode of the B2BMX podcast. I'm Claudia Tarico. And I'm Alicia Esposito. And we've got a very, very special guest with us today. His name is Jay Akunzo, and he is an award-winning podcast host and director and a global keynote speaker. Fun fact, he will be presenting at our upcoming B2B sales and marketing exchange online experience. Hi, Jay. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on. Thanks so much for taking the time. You are arguably one of the busiest folks in marketing right now. (laughs) Travel limitations actually haven't stopped you at all. So give us the scoop. What have you been up to over the past few months? Yeah, so I teach the craft of making shows and I make shows. And so that divides into two different projects right now anyway. So one is building my company, Marketing Showrunners. We have podcast workshops, a newsletter, a podcast about podcasts, which is very meta, I know. So meta. Uh, Right? Could not be more meta than that. And when you market to marketers and make stuff for makers, you naturally have to podcast to podcasters. So it was only logical. So I'm running marketing showrunners, teaching people how to make great shows that matter to their audiences and make a difference in this world. And then trying to do the same thing on my own with clients and production teams. So one example of that is I just launched a new documentary series this fall called Against the Grain, which is trying to replace the typical monopolistic business success story, which we're seeing now is doing so much bad for the world, with a better story of people at the center of business, putting people over profits and having a mission behind your metrics. So Against the Grain dropped three episodes this fall and reminded me of what it was like to like be out in the field shooting things. Production is a close quarters type of work that you do. And so I'm reminded of like, not only what went on behind the scenes with people shooting, but also on camera, you can see me like high-fiving and hugging what were total strangers. So my Italian-American self is like longing for those days again right now. Oh man, I can imagine. And honestly, I do see that too. I watch a bunch of movies and I'm like, wow, will we ever be able to like share forks or with friends even and really just hug each other and... I mean, I saw someone in a clip on a TV show hit a button in an elevator and I turned to my wife and I'm like, (laughs) he pressed the button with his finger. What a savage. Yeah. (laughs) We're actually just watching the morning show and actually finished it in like two days, which is like shameful. But anyways, we saw a crowded New York City street with people bumping into each other. I'm like, this is jarring. This is weird that it feels weird to see that. So it's definitely the whole world is in a completely new context right now, which I think we're going to be really digging into today. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, obviously, unless you're living under a rock, in-person events, face-to-face engagements, they're all off the table. But Jay has participated in his fair share of virtual events, I'm sure, webcasts and other experiences. So Jay, I'd love to get your take on the evolution that you've kind of seen during this short period of time and how are all of our B2B friends stepping up to their game. Sure. I think I had a sneaky advantage when this happened, which was I make shows for a living. So whether it's audio or video, you have to think about this linear experience that your consumer is going through end to end. So if they hit play, 
Your job is to make sure they don't hit stop. And I think we spend a lot of time as speakers, whether you're a professional speaker that is trying to earn a living through that craft as, as I am, or you're just trying to share your knowledge because you're an executive or practitioner, you have to think about not what a virtual talk is, but what a virtual audience is going through. You're not giving a talk to the platform. You're giving a talk to now one individual receiving your work alone in a room somewhere. You're not actually talking to a crowd. So there's all these subtle things, and that's one example, I suppose, of what changes. I mean, when you land a joke as a speaker, it feels great. And, and if you're giving the same talk a lot, you're like a stand-up comic. You've done that joke a million times. You know all the beats and the moves and the pauses to trigger the laugh. And you can lean into it if you're live in person. Everybody in the room has permission to laugh because some people started the laughter and the laughter rolls. That goes away virtually. So what do you do if you give a joke? Do you pause awkwardly? Do you you're on to something. You have to insert the laugh a little bit to yourself, but you can't like belly laugh at your own joke. So, and again, this is such a tiny little thing, right? I'm talking about laughter to a joke, a tiny micro moment in most people's talks and how that changes. And so now you zoom out to the overall experience and you have one individual that you're speaking to endlessly distracted. There's no social pressure to stay put. It's on you as a speaker to deliver an actual performance that is structured in such a way that you get people to the end. And so when I'm making a show or teaching it, we talk about this golden rule of show running, which is get them to the end, have a plan, have a purpose to make sure that they actually want to proceed and all the creative techniques they're in. Well, now as a virtual presenter, you have to think about that too. You have to get them to the end. It's not enough that they arrived and you have this captive audience in a room. They are not captive. They have endless distractions and you are one option. And if you are a poor option, they're not going to pay attention. Yeah, I think it really proves how multidimensional presenting is and frankly running an event right we are lucky that we have a heritage of doing both in person and digital events largely through like just like a traditional webinar format or conversations like this but i think it's easy to underestimate how difficult it is to give a good virtual presentation as one person or even two people if you know you're doing a more panel driven format. So I guess my question for you is for the event organizers out there, the people who want to structure events the right way, who want to guide their speakers the right way. I mean, what considerations do we really need to be thinking through? You know, what points should be outlined in that to do or best practices checklist? Because I feel like as we start to peel back the layers, you know, there's so many possible formats that could go into a virtual experience, but I'm curious to, to hear if there are any underlying trends or top performing formats that, that maybe we can dig a little bit deeper into. It's so tough to generalize because it's so specific to the individual performer. And, and I think I, you've heard me say performance and performer several times. You do have to think of it like a performance, like you have to be entertaining and educational. I like to joke that what we're doing essentially, if we just copy and paste a great keynote from an in-person event to a virtual event, all we're essentially doing is trying to compress a transformative idea some of the biggest and best ideas and performers and thinkers of our time into the cheapest looking and feeling delivery vehicle. And that just won't cut it. A lot of things are lost and stripped away when you move virtual and you have to add those back proactively. I mentioned the laughter as one very specific example. So is there one, you know, I can't say it should all be pre-recorded or 
live plus some pre-recorded material or 100% live, it's sort of understanding what all these things are for. And that's a question we often don't ask as marketing people, salespeople, professionals in general, like given a project, what is this for? It's design thinking 101. What's it for? Who's it for? How will we know it's working? Same thing with a virtual environment. What is this for? So a live experience, you know, you and I, all three of us are talking live right now over Zoom. Were we to have an audience, this is a poor format for it to be a broadcast because there's really not much we can do here to enhance the experience. Now, hopefully some of the chops that we've worked on as performers are coming through. Hopefully I can tell good stories. Hopefully I'm animated enough and lively enough that I'm gripping you, speaking to the right topics, yes. But I can't like add some B-roll video right now. It'd be great if I could click a button and cut away. And there are some performers that have that technology in their, in their rooms somewhere in their homes, but we're limited. So it's not a broadcast. It should be more casual. It should be more interactive if we had an audience because it's like hanging out. It's like talking. It's a distant echo of that in person, but still, that's what the live experience is good for. Now, all the way on the other end of the spectrum, you have fully recorded or what they call simulive. That's like, I tell performers here, you want to think like Stephen Colbert, not Coldplay. Be Colbert, not Coldplay. Colbert does live simulive shows in his studio and now in his home. And it's meant to be timely. It's meant to seem like it's delivered off the cuff and live. Everybody knows, however, it was recorded at noon not at five, six, or seven, whenever it's broadcast on TV, right? So having the ability to have moments to camera that are pre-recorded, and then things you can add around you, below you, or cutting away to immerse people in things, that's profoundly powerful. So you have fully produced, fully recorded, that's more this immersion element. Then you have this stripped down bare stuff, which is more about interactivity and access. And the danger isn't in picking the wrong one. The danger is in not asking, well, what is that good for? So I see a lot of speakers that are on stage are dynamic and they're moving and they're awesome. And then now they're sitting in a dimly lit office. It's a little bit awkward because they don't have their camera set up or their lights set up correctly. So they look weird and they're just sort of dead eye speaking to you or even looking at the screen and speaking to the screen. And it's like, mm. what happened to you? You were so great on stage. <laughs> and now I'm getting this because they're trying to be a performer right. in the format that's not a performance. And they're trying to be a broadcaster in the format that's live. So you have to match your approach to the, the delivery vehicle. And I think the way to do that is you ask, what is this actually for? Well, and also to your point, like what are the strengths of the speaker, right? Like do they do really well in more conversational settings? Like are they more about sound bites, right? Like I can see certain keynote speakers and be like, that's a tweet, that's a tweet, that's a video clip. Like it's really easy for them to put that type of content together. So I've been thinking a lot about like even just like the different approaches for sessions. So to your point about Stephen Colbert, like there are micro segments inside that show that, you know, have different structures, they serve different needs. So I'm wondering if we're going to be reaching a tipping point, and maybe you you have a particular opinion on this, where we're going to be seeing a shakeout of different session structures, like, like wins and losses, or maybe it's like a head to head type session where people get like five minutes of time each, and like, they kind of go like a debate format, like, is there opportunity for us to think beyond just the production value right. and like other elements to shake up. You're speaking you know, the my presentation. language. Every creative endeavor benefits if the creator knows the structure underneath it. I used to reject this idea and think, well, if you have taste and you practice, 
You can brute force or gut feel your way forward and create story after story or talk after talk or blog post after blog post. It's a lot more useful. And I learned this in a, in a bygone version of my work as a sports journalist. If you know what a, what a nut graph is, which is a very useful type of paragraph to help you report on a game that just happened if you're a sports reporter. It's useful to know what the hero's journey structure is. It's useful to have in show running parlance a rundown or a run of show. Because what you want to do is have these blocks you move through. And there's two types of rundowns. And you can actually map that to your style as a presenter. So there's a visible and an invisible rundown. To the creator, they're visible all the time. It's about whether or not the audience knows they're there. So to your point, which is a great one, sometimes you're exploring lots of disconnected things within one experience. Like I'm going to do a list of seven things. Or we're going to have a gamified little experience with a couple of speakers instead of one. You want the audience to have a visible rundown that they can see because that chunks the experience and gives them that refreshed feeling every time you move to the new block. You see a lot of sports shows do this, quite frankly, where they have a visual below or to the side of the anchors or the pundits, and they move through that flow. News programming, same thing. So if you explore a lot of disparate things and you're okay with a little bit of gamification, use a visible rundown, have a plan, and let the audience in on it, they'll be eager to stick and stay. So that's one way to get them to the end. The other way is you have an invisible rundown, which is I still need to know the blocks of my speech. I'm telling a story. I need to know how to actually structure a keynote, for example, but I want it to feel like one cohesive experience. You don't know what the plan is, but I do. And that's useful if you have one cohesive experience in mind. It's not a list of seven. I'm trying to prove one big point, tell one story, or even use multiple stories to explore one theme. And I want that nice arc to the talk. I still need my rundown. I still need to know how to grip people. An easy example is a lot of keynote speakers with big conceptual ideas, they jump too far ahead and they just sort of give you their hard truth or hidden truth about the way of the world or the way it should be. And that loses a lot of people. So better to start with Here's our shared goal. We all want this, right? Everyone nods. Okay, and here's how we're going about it. Because let's acknowledge we're already trying to get that shared goal. And everybody nods. And then you say, but here's the problems with all that status quo, with the current state of affairs. And some people go, haven't thought of that. Or others go, oh, wow, yeah, you're right. Speak in my language. And then you propose your hidden truth at that point. Well, consider this. And now some people are like, you know, I'm on board. I don't know what this looks like or how to do it, but yeah. And some people are skeptical. Either way, you have permission to keep talking, and then you can give a story that illustrates it, and on and on and on. So when you have a structure, whether it's known to the audience or not known, that's how you can start to do exactly what you're talking about, which is mold different experiences, no matter the type of experience, gamified or not, short form, long form, one speaker or another, you have a plan underpinning it, and that is the problem. Too many speakers and event organizers don't have a rundown. They don't know the structure. So people don't actually get to the end because it wasn't the intention of the creator. Right. So very intentional planning and structure considerations. But I think the most interesting thing about everything you just shared is that they still all ladder up to how can we connect with our audience in the best possible way and and truly resonate, right? Which is the goal for any marketer. But I feel like now, especially, we're hearing that that hunger for connection, that need for humanness in, in marketing. And I know we, we've been talking about this for a while. Like it, it's all kind of almost like a stereotype in B2B marketing right now. <laughs> but I have to ask, I mean, what does that mean, this idea of being human in marketing? And, and this obviously goes beyond 
virtual events, which has has been key so far. What does that mean to you in the context of now? Because we're living in a completely different mindset, both personally and professionally. Yeah. I think we need to get past some of the phrases that we're getting really excited about in marketing, like be human and be authentic. You can be authentically you. And if you're a jerk, then you're you're a jerk, <laughs> right? You could like right. look at the news and also some of the terrible things and opinions that people have about humanity. Those are humans, right? So you can be a human and nobody wants to hear you speak or interact with you or connect with you. But I think what we're trying to strive for is the fact that we say what we mean and mean what we say, Right. I'm not going to cloud all my things in jargon. I just have to look at the camera, which now is people's eyes, right? Pe- people don't have eyes anymore. Eye contact is now me staring at a green dot, which I'm trying to do right now. And oh my gosh, as a speaker, am I so tired of looking into a green dot because I do it way too much throughout the week. But that's part of it. It's like, I'm going to strip away the jargon. I'm going to say what I mean. And I'm going to mean what I say. My actions are going to back up my words. And I think that's what we mean. When we say maybe be authentic or be human, you know, I heard, I heard an example, I think it came from maybe like a Seth Godin about a surgeon. If a surgeon is feeling a little less confident or they're just bored or they had a tough night at home and they're stressed or tired, do you want them to be authentically the way they're feeling when they perform surgery on you or a loved one? Like, no, you want them to act as if. And so like, we're all going through that. We do have to act as if, right? But at the same time, we shouldn't be bait and switching people. Gone are the times where like some hollow influencer shilling everybody else's knowledge secondhand is a trustworthy source. Hopefully gone. Gone should be the era where marketers promise tons of value in an ebook, but really what they're doing is they're just good at advertising the value. So you fill out a form on the website and then you open the ebook and it's written by an intern who doesn't know the domain. That's an example of not being quote unquote human or authentic. We get into some dangerous territory when we say just be you. I think you should find the best of you and make sure that's all coming through forcefully and not trying to stick to some deck that a corporate mothership put together. Yeah, that's great. But what does that all mean for the channel mix? Does that mean, you know, specific channels and formats aren't as important? How can we really leverage the specific channels and areas that will actually play an important role as we focus on connecting and engaging in a more you know, meaningful way. I think we're living through a really interesting time for a number of reasons, obviously, but specifically with marketing and sales and just growing brands in general, it used to be the case that perhaps more of our work was focused on grabbing attention for better or worse, I'd say worse, but that was the interpretation of the job, grab attention. Today, it's all about holding attention. And coming out of the software industry, I learned this from people running product. They think about retention and the churn of their users and customers and trying to reach negative churn, which is the existing users are more valuable over time and counteract in a positive way the churn of their customers who are leaving. So great marketing is not about grabbing attention. It's about holding it. If you want to say it in a more human way, back to that term humanity, it's not about who arrives. It's about who stays. And there's no tactic or absolute answer about which channel to pick that will quote unquote work. If you want to say there's one tactic, fine, there's one tactic. Create a better experience for people. You need some things optimized for depth and resonance, not reach and instant growth. It's a portfolio mix to be sure, but it should start with what are we doing? Not to grow awareness or get more, 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 but to take the people that are casually aware of us and observing us and maybe even like us 
and ensuring they become super fans. We're so obsessed with the top of the funnel. What we should be doing is looking at the bottom of the funnel, those advocates, and trying to serve them more deeply. So instead of looking at a funnel, period, we should be thinking like concentric circles. It kind of doesn't make any sense to do marketing the way we do it, which is to go cold to total strangers and tell them we exist. But we think the job is awareness. And so now we're out on all these channels blasting links everywhere. Because if they only knew we were around, if they only knew we published this thing, of course they would like it. I think that's a dangerous assumption. I think we should focus more on the will they like it part, doing things they like. And so that's where if you look at concentric circles instead of a funnel, stop looking at the outer rings, those total strangers, and you move towards the center to those people that are casually aware, casually engaging, and bring them tighter and tighter into the middle where superfans sit. And then, beautifully, they will go out to the outer circles and get you some of those people for free. But we aren't seeing this organically in most organizations, so we think it's a marketing problem. We're like, we have to go out cold ourselves. That's inefficient and expensive. The problem is not a marketing or a promotion or distribution problem. The problem is an experience problem. Whatever we're building is actually not worth sticking with. It's not worth people's time. It's a commodity. It's not worth talking about. It's not so valuable or focused on service to the audience that reaching 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, whatever seems small to you, is enough. But it should be enough. You know, I, I teach podcasts. What we say is if you reach whatever number feels small to you, you should be done telling people your show exists. And everything else you do is about serving those existing listeners more deeply. Because if they already love your show and they aren't willing to talk about it, then why are you running around the internet talking about it? They've spent 60 minutes an episode with you and they're not saying anything about it. It's a product problem. It's not a distribution problem. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So it's a combination of not just who stays, but maybe even inviting the right people to the party. So not like blasting, but like maybe zeroing in on a very specific group of people or, or a specific role. So it's like a hybrid of those two concepts. Well, it's, it's easy to say what you need. It's harder to find it. It's easy to say you need to know who you're for, but also who you're not for. If you have a set point of view, some other people that very well might look demographically like your customer, psychographically, they disagree with your point of view or your beliefs. A lot of people are arbitraging podcasts. They're getting in when it's cheap and a trend, trying to get a quick injection of attention, and then they're out. At MSR, we don't serve those people. And high five, handshake, and hug, if that's what you want to do as a marketer, we're not for you. It's our belief is that you should be trying to make a show that makes a difference for the audience and this concentric circle view, namely focusing in the middle not the outer rings. If you don't agree with that, fine. We're just not for you. That's our belief system. And some people very much agree with that and some people don't. But it's harder to just pick this out in theory. So who are you for and not for, right? Or who is this show for and not for? What's a lot easier, however, we do these like special guest sessions for our workshop students. And yesterday's was Robert Rose, known thinker and great guy in the B2B marketing space. And he had this awesome point which is essentially, where's your run-on sentence? Are you describing your audience in a run-on sentence? You know, we're thinking about this audience and they have these traits and these beliefs and yada, 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 yada. And then it's a general topic, say, podcast for them. We're focused on a show about community and how to build community for people who run digital communities in the nonprofit space in Northeast America and believe in this and that and the other thing. So your run-on sentence is who you're for which means there's a lot of things or a lot of people you're not for. Or is your run-on sentence, 
the material, the things you're exploring topically or thematically in your content. So we explore how to build community specifically with this technique or tactic or philosophy, blah, 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 about building community for marketers, right? So where's your run-on sentence? If you don't have one, if it's like, this is a show about community for marketers, you're too broad, you're not saying anything differentiated, and that's the kind of thing people are usually building, and then their executives are like, why isn't this thing growing? The real question is, you haven't earned it. You haven't earned trust and love. You haven't earned attention. You haven't earned the ability to grow. It's not growable. So you need that run-on sentence, who you're for, who you're not for. Yeah, and I think that, especially for podcasts specifically, that consistency of delivering upon or or meeting whatever that run on sentence is really important too, right? Because people are still feeling you out. Like they'll give it a few episodes maybe to see if you're delivering upon what you're saying you will, right? Like to your point about like how many times have you downloaded a piece of content and you're like, you're not touching on anything that you talked about in the landing page, right? So I think that notion of putting your stake in the ground and saying like, this is this is who we are and this is our intention in the marketplace, not just our positioning, right? It's what are we bringing to the table? That's something that is exciting, but I could imagine also a a little bit scary for some marketers because for so long we've heard, don't ruffle any feathers, like don't side too much with a particular development or cause or, I mean, we're hearing more and more about cause marketing and what that means in a business sense. So it's interesting to hear that now it's kind of table stakes to kind of put a stake in the ground and say, this is what we stand for, even if it's at the content level. So I think the don't ruffle the feathers type advice comes from organizations like P&G you're building commodities for a mass audience, right? You're trying to be a top 40 hit, a flavor of the week. And I think that's fundamentally bad advice to build a long lasting business that matters to people. Our jobs are not to sell some more stuff or create some more stuff. Our jobs are to help people in some way, to make stuff that makes a difference. And it's far easier to make stuff people like and get a response to that than to try and make people like stuff right? And don't ruffle feathers takes away your ability to make stuff people like, because then you become milk toast. Then you become watered down. You're saying nothing to lots of people or saying a little bit to lots of people. The best you get is a glance. And so you can actually picture, like part of our podcast workshops, we talk about the audience relationship pyramid. So picture a pyramid and there's four layers bottom to top. You want to be at the top because at the top are precious few things that feel irreplaceable. At the bottom are lots and lots of options, each individual one of which feels pretty forgettable. The bottom layer is relevant. So being relevant just means you're in the world according to your audience, because we don't pay attention to anything that's irrelevant. Being relevant used to be the advice and content. It's no longer good enough. I don't think it ever was. A layer up from that is be relevant and enjoyable, be a good experience. That's also not good enough. That's table stakes, just like being relevant, because you have so many options in this world even down to a B2B niche, that you're going to go with the one that's a better experience. You can't out-information somebody else in the information age. You can win on experience, though. So everybody has to have a good experience. But the two layers at the top are where we want to be, I think. And that's refreshing and personal. When you're refreshing, it's different than being different. Because if you ask, how can we be different? You're like, different from whom? The competition. But when you ask, are we refreshing? Now you're talking about refreshing to whom? The audience. 
the people you're trying to serve, right? So installing small refreshing changes on the status quo, not random stunts, and focusing that on the audience, actually investigating what they're going through and how you can be better than the existing status quo. That's how you feel refreshing. And if you are relevant and enjoyable and refreshing, you can feel personal, which is this irrational emotion-based pick that others have for you, even in the face of endless competition, right? In the podcast world, hey, you should check out the number one podcast in marketing. It's this. Okay, I get that it's the number one ranked in Apple Podcasts, but I like this one the best. That's my favorite podcast about marketing. I am irrationally biased. Like we want our audience to play favorites when it comes to picking us, not them. That's an emotion-based decision. And so not ruffling feathers takes away a lot of the emotion, takes away the point of view and your belief system. And it basically kneecaps an organization's ability to actually ascend this audience relationship pyramid. So they stay at the bottom where you're forgettable among the noise. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff, Jay. And it seems like that should really drive everything that a marketer does or a marketing team does at at the foundational level. But to go the next layer up, so to speak, it's how does this get applied, especially as we try to think through, like, what are the new behaviors? Like, what are the new channels? Again, through the lens of our target audience, no matter how big or small. And that's where that new reality or the new normal comes in, right? Like the digital traffic is skyrocketing and what's going to sustain, what's going to change. Looking at this through the lens of 2021, because before we know it, people are going to try and get their budgets in, build their planning, What recommendations do you have for the folks watching or listening right now that want to work their way up that pyramid that you were just talking about, but still ensure that they're making the right investments, right? Because people are paying closer attention to marketing's impact financially. Right. So I I may have mentioned this before. So I came out of the software as a service industry niche, working for companies like Google and HubSpot. And, you know, I guess Google's not SaaS necessarily, although they have some SaaS products, but software. And I always revered great product managers because what great product managers do really, really well is exactly how great marketing and sales leaders need to act right now. Great product managers obey this pithy advice we always hear of talking to customers. So that's one answer I could give you. Go talk to your customers. Like, forget about what's swirling around the industry or in general. Forget about these big existential things, as crazy as it sounds to say that. Go talk to your customers because they'll show you the way. It's pithy. It's common. We still don't do it. It's also a little misleading. Product managers that are good, yes, they interact with customers and ask them questions and talk to them. What they don't do is build what the customer wants. What they do is provide what they know the customer needs. So what they're asking are questions like, what problems are you facing right now in your business or in doing this task as a consumer? How are you currently trying to solve those problems? What is broken about the status quo you're enduring right now? And how are you already trying to solve those problems? And then what they do is they take all that advice, ignore anything like feature requests, content requests, experience requests, things that they're like the customer giving you ideas for what you should do. They ignore that stuff. They find the pain and own it. Then they go back internally with their teams. And there, they have a wonderful well of people with taste and experience and skills built specifically to solve that pain. And they come up with things that the customer didn't know to ask for. So we have this like idea of Henry Ford. If I asked what people wanted, they would have said faster horses. We kind of dilute that. What he's not saying is don't talk to customers. What that advice is actually hinting at is Talk to customers about what's broken, 
own the pain that they are actually going through specifically in reality in your firsthand experience, not some secondhand blog post you read, your actual customer or audience, what is painful right now? And then use it to then inform what you build to solve it. So when you're planning out your marketing, it has to be based there. If you are sitting there thinking, oh, I should have done that all along, then looking forward, don't expect the planning process to be any less painful. If you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I don't have access to customers, you have social media accounts, don't you? You have to start participating in the community. And I think this is why it's so important that teams hire marketers and salespeople that actually care about the audience, that actually think about the community they're trying to serve. They don't necessarily just love the mechanics of the job, and they could do it anywhere. They love the product, the service, the problem, the community, the people they're trying to serve. So my pithy answer is talk to customers. But I think it's actually how we go about that that enables us to find solutions and then plan accordingly. That's very interesting. So would you say that like feedback, surveys, one-on-one kind of virtual meetings, I guess now, because we can't do face-to-face, is that where we could get these types of answers? How does that kind of planning process really begin when you really want to like reach out to a customer or even a prospect and really learn more about them to deliver? It's going to look different in different places for different people. Here's an easy example, though. You can start building private Twitter lists that you should check in on recurringly on your own personal account, not the brand account, your personal Twitter handle. Build a private Twitter list. No one knows they're being added to it. And it's just made up of people who are talking excitedly, not about the industry. Yes, it's important maybe to keep up with folks who talk about the industry. Thank you for anybody who supports my work. But like, you should be following and talking to people that are like, the like-minded community you're trying to serve as a business. What are they talking about? How are they feeling? What are they sharing? You need to start participating in the community. Marketing is not about promotion. It's about participation. And so you can use social channels like that for free to start observing, start engaging, start becoming an active member of the community. What we have to get away from is this idea that customer insights necessarily have to be a scalable tech solution that delivers it to us. I think that's where we really miss the mark. Because that's where we get data, or in this case, numbers. Data is just information you store for later use. So data can also be qualitative feedback, can be observations you have, can be numbers. So we obsess over the numbers. The numbers just told you what happened in the past. The real goal is insights. Where can you get insights? Any source of data. And again, data is this big wide world of any kind of information you can store. So that's how I'd begin. Where can you find existing pockets of conversation? which by the way, sounds a lot like advice you would have gotten in 2010, right? And actually start absorbing it. You actually have to spend time with it. Where we get into trouble, I'm convinced, is we want all of our work to be after the insight. We want our work to be like, okay, we know the insight. Now we have to build the thing and the campaign and the budget and the internal politicking and all that stuff. The real work actually happens before you have a clue what to do. The real work happens with trying to find that fundamental, what they call first principle insight and actually addressing that. My favorite current example comes from a company in Indianapolis, a B2B software company called Lessonly. They sell internal training technology. So L&D teams, sales leaders, customer support leaders, training their teams. They're one of, in their estimation, 800 competitors in the US alone that do what they do. They have a podcast called Practice First. Not train your team, not best in sales, practice first. They have a concept based on an insight. The insight was our most successful customers and our most successful leaders and community people that we follow, even who aren't customers, they talk a lot about the value of practicing white-collar type jobs, 
practicing knowledge-based work. We want to actually observe their behavior now through the product. They went one level deeper. Sure enough, they're not just talking about practice on social media. They're adopting Lessonly's practice products. So all the features labeled practice, very active. They're most successful customers, very active on those features. Great. We want to create more very successful customers. We're going to create a show called Practice First. Their endeavor is to elevate the role of practice for sales and customer support. So they go and talk to not just sales and customer support leaders, but sommeliers, athletes, coaches, people who are practicing or delivering practices. And they want to know what does it take to be a world-class practicer. That's only possible. That's only effective if you base it on an insight. And that insight really only comes if you front load a lot of that work. If your, your work is being an investigator more so than it is sort of being a marketer. Very interesting. And it, it kind of pairs well with my work as an editor. You, you want to find the right person and the right angle for something. And you just got to do the research. You got to yep. know what questions to ask. You got to do the research before you start writing the, the story. You must have written plenty of papers in school, right? The real work that determines if your paper will be good or not is all the research you do, all the note-taking you have from classes and from those sources, any outlining you might have done. And then you get to that last mile, which looks like the work. And this is a direct analog to marketing. It looks like the work to, to open up a Google Doc and start writing the actual paper. But that's the tip of the iceberg. That's the last mile stuff. So like planning out your content, planning out your budgets, getting team on board, trying to figure out if you need uh, external resources to work with, actually writing or recording anything. That's actually the last mile work. The real bulk of the work is your ongoing participation and investigation into the audience you aim to serve. And I'm so struck by how easy it is to understand that we don't do that and how unwilling we seem to be to even try because you don't need to overhaul anything in your day. Take 20 minutes a week, schedule it, start there. Not hard. You don't need permission. You don't need budget. You don't even need new technologies. They're all right in front of us. We're just not doing this. And I think the problem is we're not focused on, back to the first question, sort of the mission, the higher level cause. When I mentioned that, that documentary series at the very top of this show, Against the Grain, it's to try and promote business as a source of greater good, to put mission behind your metrics and not just try to be the next Facebook or Google because that does a lot of damage. But when a business doesn't have that mission for their team, people think the work is shipping content. They think the work is hitting a lead total. That's a byproduct of the real work, which is to make a difference for your audience. So don't just make some stuff, make stuff that makes a difference. Very cool. Yeah. And I'd love to, speaking of planning, you're going to be speaking a lot about the new plan A <laughs> at our upcoming B2B sales and marketing exchange virtual yeah. event. So excited for that. Can you give us a quick teaser into what the goals are for your session, how it is being shaped by the conversations that you're actually having with B2B executives? It turns out that the best teams today are thriving, not because they have some secret based on how to act during the pandemic or based on like this phrase that we keep turning out, which is the unprecedented time or the new normal, maybe. There's not some secret there. What the teams are that I'm looking at and talking to and studying that are doing really well now they're very, very good at making decisions based on new variables. So that applies at all times. So you should get good at that now if you're not. But it's great to get good at it now because even when the pandemic is gone, there will always be new variables, right? And so what so often happens is we make decisions based on playbooks, conventional wisdom, best practices, things that were built on lagging indicators of what works in the past. And what these people we admire, we sometimes call them visionaries, what these visionaries do 
So they don't have some kind of vision of the future. They just see the present more clearly. And they're like, all right, well, given these new variables, let's funnel those variables into our usual decision-making calculus. And out the back end of that decision-making process, we now know what to do next. Now, granted, some of the variables we're dealing with now are not common variables, but it shouldn't necessarily shake us from the way we approach complexity, the way we approach change. So I'm sick of this idea that you need a new plan. Like, like this wasn't the plan. That's what I hear a lot. Like even from event organizers, not you all, but like I've had some events where they're like, look, we're doing a virtual talk or doing a virtual event here. It wasn't plan A. So what are you going to do? Give your audience a plan B? No, you need the new plan A, right? You need it to be as best as you can possibly be, not a backup. And I think that actually starts with our ability to see what's happening in front of us more clearly. A big, big part of that is how you extract those insights from your audience, which we just spent some time talking about. But there's other variables you can explore and you can put a system to it. So I'll be bringing stories and some science and a light system that you can try to start making better choices, no matter what everyone else is saying you have to do, and no matter what change the world throws your way. I love that. And can you share, are there any examples of brands that you think are really doing a seller job of adapting and, and agile and diversifying the way they are engaging with their communities? I know you, you mentioned Lessonly, which was a great example, yeah. but any others? I really admire what Wistia is doing. They're, they're a partner of ours at Marketing Showrunners, so I have access to a lot of what they're up to. But Wistia is so heavily reliant on in-person everything, in-person team culture, in-person video shooting, because they sell video software. So they do a ton of videos themselves. They are very much anchored to brick and mortar offices. Well, they're a startup. So brick and mortar and reclaimed wood offices. Hashtag millennials. So <laughs> Expose brick, maybe. Listen, a little right, bit of exposed brick. Little shiplap. <laughs> Y'all, all I want to do is write some stuff next to some exposed brick, drinking a $5 coffee around a bunch of other people trying to do the same thing. I just Or an that. IPA that's on tap. Or an IPA on tap, right? That's all I want. And, and I'm, some I, snacks. I'm actually not being sarcastic. I really do want that. So um, <laughs> Now I'm hungry. Yeah, right. Uh. Um, so I'll have a $5 coffee and a $7 scone, please. Thank you. Uh, so anyways, I, I think what Wistie has done is exactly what we keep talking about, which is think about given the variables, given the new world, Here's a big, broad example for them. Like many marketers, they did a lot of things focused on awareness for many years. Buying ads, thinking about the marketing funnel instead of these concentric circles that I mentioned. And so their anchor to their marketing was awareness. But what they realized was awareness is a proxy. We don't actually want awareness. What you really want is affinity. And your belief is, if more people were aware of you, a lot more people would also like you. And so what they realized is we need to just focus solely on the like you part. And they switch from doing one-off 10-minute videos here and there to doing really in-depth original series. And some of those they did in person before the pandemic, and a lot of those are now producing digitally and virtually. And these are intended to just be affinity-based, right? So instead of total views, total time spent. Instead of one-off pieces, original series. Instead of measuring the top of the funnel, they're measuring the velocity down the funnel. Not total audience, total audience who stays. You get the picture. And so reorienting their marketing team a little bit before the pandemic, but very fully since that went away on shows and the apparatus around shows has been a major switch for Wistia. And now they're promoting this idea of brand affinity marketing instead of brand awareness, brand affinity. So I love what they're doing because it's a philosophical change, but it's not one based on gut feel. It's one very much informed by these new variables that we're all dealing with. 
I love that. And I can't wait to hear what other examples you have, because I really do think this is the opportune time for people to come together and learn from each other, right? It's actually been really enlightening to see all of the open and honest conversations that we have been having with each other around our challenges, our new challenges, whether it be budgetary, bandwidth, or just situational, like as far as channels and Zoom fatigue or virtual event fatigue, which great, can't wait to tackle that next. Oh my Um, goodness. I get to tell tell everybody I talk to you, you have such nice green eye. (laughs) (laughs) I'm over Um, it. I'm sick of it. I know, I know, I know. But thank you for bearing with the green dot once more and Everywhere. for joining it's not us. Just, it's not you. It's not your fault. It's not. It's this is the this is the this wasn't plan A. I yeah. get that. So what's the new plan A? How do you look at green eye? Yep. <laughs> and make something amazing, right? Mine's actually a white eye, but oh, that's okay. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Shake things up. Shake things up that's a little fair. bit. But to that end, now that we're closing up our time together on a fantastic conversation, you're the you're the type of person I could talk to all day. Oh, so thanks. we'll tap it off at 50 minutes. I think, like I said, it's it's the time for us to kind of take a step back, rethink, reassess, and maybe take a few risks here and there. And I would love for us to close off on what is really driving you in these times? Any points of inspiration, any sources that folks watching or listening right now are like, oh, geez, I want to learn more. Like this guy knows his stuff. I want to go to where he goes <laughs> to, to be so smart. <laughs> I Yeah. I spend very little time consuming and a lot of time creating and tinkering. And I feel like we misconstrue creativity as big. Like we have to have great inspiration and we have to have lots of budget and lots of time. And I would challenge people to think about, to reclaim a feeling of momentum what is the tiniest possible, messiest possible creative practice you can install? It could be writing two paragraphs for your blog posts on a personal site a few times a week. It could be creating an episode for your podcast that is a behind the scenes raw look at what's going on. Hey, we don't usually do this. And I'd like to continue with the more rigorous episodes, but here's how we're feeling. And we want to sort of package that feeling into a learnable moment for our audience, kind of letting your hair down or pulling the curtain aside or whatever analogy you want to use. I think creativity is just the sum total of lots of little pieces that happens all the time in the minutia. And I think so much of us feel like, I don't know about you, but I feel like a flattened 2D version of myself. I can't connect with other people face to face. All of my connection is in fact 2D, aside from my immediate family. And so can we reinflate ourselves a little bit, finding that momentum, that refreshing feeling of understanding things better, of addressing challenges, of telling stories, of making stuff? So we overthink this. I don't know if we need a ton of inspiration. I think what we need is to embrace that creativity should be messy and raw and tiny all the time. And if you're not sure where to start, if you're trying to get back to feeling like a 3D person, start there. Find a pocket of the internet where there's no stakes at all. Reorient your ideas. Writing is a perfect place to do this. Don't write to ship what you understand. Write to try and understand, right? And you'll be amazed not only at how you feel, but how many people relative to your last response from folks are like, oh my gosh, thank you for speaking my language or wow, I can't believe I get an insight into your process and the way you're thinking. So that's what I tell people is just just start shipping tiny, messy things over and over again. You'll get better faster and feel better faster. I love that. I know for, for me personally, from a creative standpoint, sometimes I get wrapped up in the thought process and the analysis and the strategy. It's like, I can't even put a sentence on paper or or on my computer. So just breaking free of that mindset and just going sometimes 
can open the floodgates, so to speak. So I think that's that's fantastic advice, Jay. Thanks again so much for taking the time out to chat with Claude and I. Like I said, we're all really excited to have you on board joining a, a great roster of speakers who are going to be talking about how they're kind of creating this new plan A, how they're adapting and their successes, even their failures, because I think now's the time to really shine a spotlight on all sides of the story. So thank you again so much for taking the time out to join us today. Thanks. Appreciate it. And uh, everyone out there, if you're interested in learning more about the B2B sales and marketing exchange online experience, we'll be sure to include a link so you guys can check out some more information and find out more about all the other speakers and experiences that we have lined up. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you next time.